Amen, right? <laughs> you grab your Bible and we'll uh, proceed with our scripture reading for this morning. Today's passage will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter into verse 34. Today's message will be Rediscovering the Last Supper. Uh, if you need, or need a few Bible, there should be one in front of you. You can find this passage on page 1100. And 39. But follow along with me as I read. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be some factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, I also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather together and worship and an opportunity to dig in and uh, understand more deeply what the Lord's Supper means for us in our daily walk with you, God. I pray that you would give Pastor Bruce the words to speak and allow us to have open hearts and minds and that we would be changed from this. In your name, amen. Well, today we are continuing in the series, Rediscover the Church. And so let's start with this question. What's the best meal you have ever eaten? Perhaps some of you will say, man, it was that barbecue meal I had here in Kansas City, your favorite place to eat at. That was the best meal. For others, maybe it was a seafood restaurant you ate at on the beach, on vacation, whatever the case may be. For some of you, maybe it's that awesome dinner you had at a nice Italian restaurant somewhere Or maybe for a lot of you, it's just that big juicy steak you grill at home on your own. Whatever else comes to your mind when you think about the best meal in the world. 
I would like to propose to you this morning that the best meal in the world is the Lord's Supper. Now, I know, I know what some of you may be thinking immediately right now. Really? That little wafer? I mean, this, this little wafer and this and this little cup of juice in there, that's the best meal in the world? Are you, you can't be serious, can you, Pastor Bruce? And yet I am serious. This meal has the power to change your life. When you understand what that little piece of bread and little cup represents. Jesus gave us this ordinance. We know it as the Lord's Supper. We, last Sunday, we looked at the other ordinance of the church, and that is baptism. And Jesus gave us these two ordinances. And this one in particular, in order to remember Him, to remember His work, and in doing so, to draw near to Him in faith. Now, that doesn't mean the bread and the juice themselves are a, a means of grace. Listen, simply eating the bread and, and drinking the juice here in a minute brings God's blessings to no one. And yet this meal is designed by God to strengthen our faith every time we eat it. And Capitol Grill or Taco Bell can't do that and neither can any other meal. Listen, when we partake in the Lord's Supper by faith, we are participating in what Christ's body and His blood have obtained for us. Think about it. The forgiveness of our sins. Reconciliation with God Almighty. Adoption into His eternal family. And all the other blessings that come with the new covenant. And that's why the Lord's Supper is oftentimes called communion as well. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? And that word participation in some of your versions is actually translated as communion or fellowship. In other words, is it not a participation or communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation or communion in the body of Christ? Because there was one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so the Lord's Supper is a spiritual communion or fellowship with Christ. Listen, when we experience anew the salvation that He's won for us on the cross, in other words, we are feeding on the bread and juice with our mouth, and so we feed on Christ with our hearts. And the we here that Paul uses is crucial. Listen, we come to the Lord's table and we do so with other believers in Jesus Christ that are part of the body of Christ. And we also have fellowship with one another. And so the Lord's Supper, listen, it really is the best meal in the world. God is at work in this ordinance. He brings blessings to those who take it in faith and He brings judgment or discipline on those who take it in an unworthy manner. Now, in this series, we're rediscovering some things, some essentials about the church. And in our first message, we rediscovered all about church membership. Last Sunday, we rediscovered the ordinance of baptism. And today, we're rediscovering the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And I said at the very beginning that all of these things are interrelated and connected. So, what, how is... Baptism that we looked at last Sunday and the Lord's Supper that we're looking at today, how are they connected? How are they tied together? How are they related to one another? David Platt answers the question this way. Here's what he says, and this is in your notes coming up on the screen. Baptism 
demonstrates our initial identification with Christ in his church. And the Lord's Supper celebrates our continual identification with Christ in his church. In other words, baptism is unrepeated. And it demonstrates, as we saw last Sunday, the beginning of life in Christ and his church. And the Lord's Supper is repeated. And it celebrates now our ongoing identification or life in Christ and his church. Now, we see this connection with the church in Jerusalem. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, passage we read last Sunday there in verses 40 and 41, Peter is preaching and he says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And we ask the question, added to what? That is, they were added to the church. 3,000 people were saved, and they demonstrated their identification with Christ in his church through baptism. And then verse 42 says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. They continued in what? Well, these new believers continued in the life of the church. They celebrated, in other words, their identification with Christ and his church through the breaking of bread, which most believers or most commentators believe is the Lord's Supper. Now, using the imagery of a wedding, baptism is like a wedding ceremony where we publicly declare our initial commitment to Jesus Christ and his church. And the Lord's Supper is like an anniversary celebration where we celebrate our continual commitment to Jesus Christ and his church. Now, just ask any wife here this morning if it's important for her husband to remember and to celebrate their anniversary, and you will hear a universal what? Yes, it's important to remember and celebrate that. And in the same way, it's absolutely important that we not neglect the Lord's Supper. In fact, that we continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. Now, this morning, what I want to do is uh, use five questions. David Platt, in a sermon that he preached many, many years ago on the Lord's Supper, asked five questions in which to... Uh, talk about the Lord's Supper. I'd like to use those same five questions as a framework for us now this morning rediscovering the Lord's Supper. And so here's the five questions we're going to look at and answer. That is who, what, where, when, and why. So question number one, who? Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Who should participate? Can anyone and everyone participate? Is everyone welcome to the Lord's table, regardless if they are a Christian or a non-Christian? Now, you might have noticed that uh, when we here at LifeBridge, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we set up some boundaries that we think best reflect biblical patterns. In fact, these boundaries are sometimes referred to as fencing the table. That is the Lord's table. And the whole purpose of fencing the table is to protect people from partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner that we just heard about from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, does that mean we have communion cops patrolling the auditorium here this morning? 
Does that mean we have the Lord's bouncers stationed near the Lord's table ready to block those who shouldn't partake of it? Well, of course not. But we do usually say something like this. In fact, we always print it in the handouts that many of you receive each and every Sunday morning. And even today, it's printed at the bottom of the handouts, and it uh, summarizes who, what our, our belief is and who should participate. We say something like this, followers of Jesus Christ. That is, those who trust Christ for salvation, identify with Christ in baptism, and commit to Christ's body and membership of a local church. They are the ones invited to participate in communion, and that statement summarizes our convictions of who should take the Lord's Supper. Now, let's break that down a little bit this morning on the participants. And so, first of all, notice it's baptized believers who belong to a local church are invited to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, it seems most clear that only believers should take the Lord's Supper. That is, people who have trusted in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. And part of this conviction flows from what the Lord's Supper grew out of, and that is the Passover meal. The Passover meal in the Old Testament was restricted to the Old Covenant community. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 12. And now the Lord's Supper is restricted to the New Covenant community. Now, who makes up the New Covenant community? Well, it's believers in Jesus Christ. It's, it's those who believe in the mediator of the new covenant. That is Jesus. Those who have been cleansed by his blood and their sins have been forgiven and they now know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. That's why when we see the Lord's Supper in the early church, it only involves believers in Jesus Christ who are part of the new community. And that new community is reflected in the local church, as we have seen in the last two messages. In fact, you take 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five for example. Jesus himself made the Lord's Supper a new covenant meal when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Or you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, and there Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so the Lord's Supper is a new covenant meal for new covenant people, those who share in the benefits of Christ's death and his resurrection. So are all believers then eligible to sit at the Lord's table? Or only baptized believers who belong to a local church? Now, I'll be honest with you there has been a lot of debate on the answer to this question. Uh, Baptists have historically debated this question with three possible views. And I'm not going to share all three views of those. They're known as the open communion view or the, the closed communion view or even the closed communion view. Uh, our view is simply this, is that baptized believers who belong to a local church are invited to the Lord's table. And we, we hold to this view for this reason. Remember what baptism demonstrates. Baptism demonstrates our initial identification with Christ in his church, and the Lord's Supper celebrates our ongoing or our continual identification with Christ in his church. So think about this with me. How can you celebrate something that you have yet to publicly identify with and commit to? 
That's like trying to celebrate a wedding anniversary without ever being married. People just don't do that. You can't do that. Jonathan Lehman, an author, he puts it this way. He says, baptism is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant, and the Lord's Supper is its renewing oath sign. Both are acts that convey commitment, and you have to make a commitment before you can renew that commitment. In fact, this goes hand in hand with what Paul is exhorting believers to examine themselves before participating in the Lord's Supper here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so would not the call to self-examination also include examining whether one has truly submitted to Christ's command to be baptized as well? Now, another question that we, we might have in our minds is, what about kids? What about kids in the Lord's Supper? When, when should kids, and, and can kids even, participate in the Lord's Supper? And I would say to you, first of all, that the Bible prescribes no minimum age, no minimum age for the Lord's Supper. And second of all, we here as a church, we at LifeBridge, we do not promote a, a particular age before one is invited to participate in the Lord's Supper. Rather, we support parents, you all, in explaining to your children and even discerning if your child is ready to take the Lord's Supper. So parents, how do you know if your child's ready to take the Lord's Supper? And parents, I would simply, without going into an explanation, is refer you to this handout that's at the info table at the back there. Pick this up. It gives you, it walks you through how you can begin to discern whether or not your child or children are ready to participate in the Lord's Supper. So what about unbelievers? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, does that mean that you need to leave the room when we get ready to take the Lord's Supper? No, absolutely not. Notice this in your notes. Unbelievers, while they are not invited to partake of the Lord's Supper, listen, they are invited to Jesus Christ. They are invited to the hope of Jesus Christ. They are invited to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I hope you understand this morning that our aim is not to be unhospitable. Our aim is not to be unwelcoming to you. Rather, our aim is that you will see the love of Jesus Christ for you as we partake of the Lord's Supper, and hopefully what you're going to see is a picture of a Savior who gave His life for you so that you could have eternal life in Him. Listen, Jesus shed His blood for you. He died on the cross for you so that you could experience the forgiveness of sins and you could have peace with God Almighty. And so if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, we invite you to put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And we want you to know that we are so thankful that you are here this morning. Which leads us to our second question about the Lord's Supper. What should we understand about it? What does it mean? What should we understand about the Lord's Supper? And David Platt says there are two basic understandings about the Lord's Supper. Two basic understandings. One is a traditional misunderstanding, and the other is a, a biblical understanding. So let's look at the, the traditional misunderstanding, and that is that the elements are a change of substance that results in salvation. Now, the theological word for this, and it's a big word, 
is called transubstantiation. And that word simply means a change or a transformation of substance. And what the Catholic Church teaches is that the outward appearance of the bread and wine stays the same, but the inner substance changes to actually be the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But this view not only affects the physical way that that we look at the Lord's Supper, but it affects the spiritual way that we look at the Lord's Supper. And here's why. Because if, if Christ's body is really in that bread, and if His blood is really in that cup, then this participation in the Lord's Supper becomes a means of one's salvation. The Catholic Church teaches that in the Lord's Supper, the grace of God is somehow infused into us. It's part of the process by which we we actually receive salvation, which is one reason why communion is served weekly at Mass. But this view of the gospel, this view of salvation and the Lord's Supper is not a biblical view. A biblical understanding is not a change of substance that results in one's salvation, but rather the elements are a symbolic meal that represents or reflects our salvation. Listen, when Jesus said in the Gospels, and Paul later records for us here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, when Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you, Jesus is saying this symbolically. He's saying this bread represents my body. Jesus is not saying the bread is his actual body. The bread represents his body, and the same is true with the wine. This is why Jesus says in the rest of verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. And so the bread and the wine is a symbolic meal that doesn't result in anyone's salvation. Rather, it reflects our salvation. Listen, what we do here today when we take the Lord's Supper is not in order to earn our salvation with God. That's not why we participate in the Lord's Supper. We don't have to do, quote, certain things in order to be saved. Why? Because Christ has already done everything that's needed to be done. Amen? That's glorious. He's already done all the work there is to be done on the cross when he died and then resurrected for us. And so we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. What we understand about the Lord's Supper is vitally important. It's not a change of substance that results in one's salvation. Rather, it is a meal that reflects our Amazing salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's move on to our third question about the Lord's Supper. And that is, where should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Can individuals celebrate the Lord's Supper alone? While they're on a camping trip, out in the woods, at a lake? What about families at home? Even, for that matter, small groups or campus ministries? And even on this question, there's a little bit of debate as to the answer to this question. In fact, what people believe about the nature of the church itself will impact how they answer these questions in particular. But when you consider how Scripture ties or links the Lord's Supper to the local church, and it ties it very closely, the biblical context of of where we should celebrate the Lord's Supper becomes rather evident. And here's the biblical context. The Lord's Supper should be celebrated in the context 
of a local church gathering. Listen, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of what? The church. Therefore, it is celebrated within the gathering of the church. And notice how Paul describes the context in which the Corinthian church celebrated the Lord's Supper here in 1 Corinthians 11. Do you realize five different times Paul speaks of the church as coming together, as gathering together? He says this in verse 17, he says it in verse 18, he says it in verse 20, in verse 33, and again in verse 34. And in verse 18, Paul explicitly says, when you come together as a church, and that is physically come together. They're gathering together in person. And so Paul assumes that there is a time when the church is gathering together as a church for corporate worship. And it's in this gathering that the church celebrates the Lord's Supper. And again, this fits perfectly with what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, where he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so in this way, the Lord's Supper, it defines our identity as a church. And not only that, it expresses our unity as a church precisely because we celebrate it together as a church. This ordinance is given to the church. It's not given to me individually. It's not given to you individually. It's not given to my family. It's not given to my ministry or to my whatever. And so for this reason, we believe it's best to celebrate the Lord's Supper when we gather together as a church. In fact, you may have noticed that during the beginning of COVID, when we were locked down for three months in our homes, couldn't get out, we couldn't gather together physically in person for worship for three months, 12 solid, 12 Sundays in a row. And, and intentionally, we as a church, and, and I know other churches did it differently, and I, so this is not a commentary on them necessarily, but we as a church, we, we felt it best, and we intentionally chose not to participate in the Lord's Supper in the sense of doing it virtually, where I would say, hey, at home, you guys get your communion stuff together, and we're now going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do so virtually, while we're all separated from one another. We just didn't feel like that was best practice for at least our church. And this is why, because we believe it should be celebrated in the context of a local, local church gathering together. And so for 12 weeks, we didn't participate in the Lord's Supper during the times of COVID. And when we gathered back together and we didn't celebrate, it was a wonderful time because it signified we are together now. We are celebrating as a church family what we had been longing for and had missed for 12 Sundays. This brings us to our fourth question about the Lord's Supper. And that is, when should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Now, on this question, the Bible does not give a specific answer. In fact, the only biblical command we have is to celebrate the Lord's Supper often. Celebrate it often. Acts 2.42 says that the believers in the Jerusalem church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And so this means that in the early church there in Jerusalem, the Lord's Supper was right up there in priority with the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and prayer. When you get now to the 
church at Corinth. Paul tells us in verse 26 here, chapter 11, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. It is implied throughout the New Testament that we are supposed to observe the Lord's Supper. We're supposed to celebrate the Lord's Supper often. But the Bible never tells us how often. The Bible never tells us that you have to observe the Lord's Supper this many times a year, this many times a month, or that you should even observe it every Sunday. We don't see that kind of command in Scripture. And so each local church has liberty to choose how often they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in case you're wondering, we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at LifeBridge on average about six to eight times a year. Uh, If you look back over the course of the years, at least while I've been pastor, that's what the average comes out to be. It's also interesting to note that the Bible does not tell us how to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That is, uh, it doesn't tell us, should we use unleavened bread? Should we use pita bread? Should we use these tiny pieces of crackers? Should we use these little wafers that are prepackaged, not prepackaged? Should we use one big cup, many tiny cups? Should we use wine? Should we use grape juice? Should we... Should the bread and juice be passed out to the congregation or should you come and get it yourself during the course of the service, before the service, after the service? doesn't tell us anything about that. Each church, again, is free to choose the method in which to observe the Lord's Supper so long as we celebrate it often. Now, we've answered four questions here this morning about the Lord's Supper. I hope they've been beneficial for you. But this last question is one I want us to focus on, and that is the why. The why. Why should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And I want to share with you four reasons why we should celebrate the Lord's Supper as often as a church. And the first reason is this. That is simply to remember. To remember. To remember the body and blood of Jesus when he died on the cross. Two different times, Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this in verse 24, verse 26, he says, do this in what of me? In remembrance of me. Now that's rather important. Jesus wants us to remember something when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what do we remember? What are we supposed to remember? We are remembering the historical events of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus lived. He had a body with flesh and blood. He died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that anyone who believes on him might be rescued from the wrath of God. That happened once and for all in history, which means the Lord's Supper roots us in the nitty-gritty of history. Therefore, the mental action, and by the way, that's our responsibility. We have something to do when we participate in the Lord's Supper beyond just opening up this packet and putting a wafer in our mouth. There's a mental activity in which we are participating in. We are remembering something. It's not imagining. Listen, we're not daydreaming. We're not channeling. We're not going into neutral. Instead, we are focusing our minds and hearts on the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We are remembering his nailed, scarred body, 
His shed blood on the cross for me and for all the world. We are remembering his sacrifice for us. There's a mental action to remember. In fact, it's rather interesting, this idea of remember, because all through the Bible, we are told to remember. It's one of the most frequent commands in all of Scripture, remember. Remember, which I find interesting. I think that references the fact that we, as a people, we are forgetful. We are forgetful people, and we forget. We have a tendency to forget what God has done for us in the past through his son, Jesus Christ. And so now Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, what I have done for you. The second reason to participate or celebrate the Lord's Supper is to reflect So it's to remember, now it's to reflect. And what are we to reflect on? We're reflecting on on our sin, on our sinfulness and God's forgiveness. The Lord's Supper is more than just remembering something in the past. We want to reflect on what it means for us today in the present. This is where we really focus on those beautiful words of Christ. This is my body, which is for you, he says. Let those words sink in for you. Listen, the God who became a man, he did that for you. The God who experienced agony and suffering, he did that for you. The God who was beaten and mocked and scourged and put on a cross was for you. And this means we reflect, first of all then, on our sinfulness because God did all of that because we are sinners in need of a Savior, which It's why Paul emphasizes self-examination before we come to the table or else we take it in an unworthy manner. Paul writes, listen to what he says again in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 28. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, what does that mean? When Paul, what does it mean to take the Lord's Supper in in an unworthy manner, as Paul says? Well, one idea, certainly, is when we take the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin in our lives. Unconfessed sin in our hearts. Paul says to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is to be guilty of something. And specifically here, Paul says, is to be guilty concerning the body and the blood of our Lord. That is, we not only dishonor the Lord's Supper, but we dishonor the Lord's sacrifice for our sins. In essence, we are mocking Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that paid for the sins we are tolerating in our lives when we come to the table with knowing sin that is unconfessed. We're dishonoring the sacrifice, in a sense, mocking it even. And so Paul says, listen, examine your own heart. And it's, and it's, 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 it's individually, I examine me and you examine yourself for unconfessed sin. And so what should we do when it comes to the Lord's Supper and we know we have unconfessed sin? Should we just skip out on it? No, no, absolutely not. Listen, we should examine ourselves for any confessed sin. In fact, even going so far as to ask God to reveal our sins to us. And then we should repent and ask God to forgive us. 
claiming that wonderful promise of God in 1 Corinthians, 1 John 1, 9, where, he, where John says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And having now received God's forgiveness, again, we then come to the Lord's table with a, with a clean heart. We come with a clear conscience, knowing that we are now worthy before God Almighty, and not worthy in ourselves, but worthy in Jesus Christ and what He has done for us on the cross and through His resurrection. You could say we come to the table to spiritually feast on God's forgiveness and faithfulness in Jesus Christ. And so the Lord's Supper... It's a reflection. In fact, it's a rather somber, serious reflection on ourselves, on our sin, and our need for Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that is offered through him, through his death on the cross. That is why whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we can never treat it casually, or at least we shouldn't. We should never treat it lightly. We don't come to the Lord's table with this callous, cavalier attitude. Listen, this is not a flippant thing we do. It's a serious thing as we reflect on our sinfulness and God's forgiveness that is provided through Christ's death and resurrection. And that leads us to a third reason to take it, to celebrate it often, and that is to renew. To renew our commitment to Jesus Christ himself, to renew our commitment to his church, his people, but also to his mission. Listen, after feasting on the Lord's forgiveness, how can we not walk away with a renewed zeal to to now honor him with our lives? A renewed commitment to to leave here this morning and Monday through Saturday to live for him and his purposes for our lives. To honor him with how we live, what we say, where we work, live, and play. Listen, we defile the Lord's Supper if we, if we just eat this bread and we drink this juice and then we walk away and give ourselves over to the things of this world. And that is exactly what these Corinthians were doing here in 1 Corinthians 11 and even chapter 10. May that not be true of us here this morning. The Lord's Supper is a time to also renew our commitment to one another in his church. Paul says in verse 17 that the church in Corinth was coming together for the Lord's Supper, and he says, not for the better, but for the worse. Listen, there were divisions within this church family. There were factions within the family, and consequently they had no unity as a family. And Paul tells us if we're going to take Christ body at the table, then we better care for Christ's body in the church. Paul tells us in verse 26 that when we take the Lord's Supper, that we also do something else. That as we take it and participate in it, we are proclaiming something. And Paul is very specific on what we proclaim. He says we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. In other words, we are saying when we participate in this in a few minutes, that this is real. This is real in my life. This is real in our church's life. Jesus has changed us. He has transformed me. No, I am not perfected yet. That day is still coming on the horizon, and we are proclaiming our identification with him and with one another, his church. And this should motivate us then 
to leave here this morning and to proclaim his death and resurrection, not just with one another in the church, but where we live, work, and play, and all across the world. And so I hope you see every time we take the Lord's Supper, it is a renewal of our own commitment as Christ followers. In fact, as, as, people, as we take it, and oftentimes there's a moment of silence, a few few seconds where you can offer a prayer to the Lord, a prayer of thanksgiving, but also a prayer of renewal. Lord, grant your grace to me this week that I might live worthy of you, worthy of the gospel that has radically changed my life. Lord, help me to do that. There's a fourth reason, and that is to rejoice to rejoice in Christ's resurrection from the grave and imminent return for his people. What do you mean rejoice? I thought you said the Lord's Supper is a very somber thing. Yes, the Lord's Supper is a serious thing. But many times after taking the Lord's Supper, we have a tendency to walk out and we're just kind of looking down and looking sad like somebody just died. Well, somebody did die. Christ died for us. But don't forget that it's in the death of Jesus Christ that we now live. Hallelujah, right? Amen. And remember, when Christ died, he did not stay dead. He resurrected from the grave. And as a result, listen, folks, we have a lot of reasons to rejoice in the Lord's Supper. And so, yes, we rejoice that Jesus died, but he rose again. And we also rejoice that Jesus is coming again. As Paul says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so every time we partake and we celebrate as a church, it is a reminder that Jesus is coming again. And that is our focus. That is our anticipation. That is our hope. And so come to the Lord's table and rejoice that Jesus will come again for his people. So obviously, after a message on the Lord's Supper, we want to now participate. We want to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we do, I I want to encourage you. I hope that you will remember his death. I hope you will reflect on your sin and God's forgiveness of that sin and to renew your commitment to Christ and his church and his mission. And then here's what we're going to do. We're going to rejoice in song as we look forward to the day when Christ returns for his bride, the church. Let me end it this way because I I just love the way that J.I. Packer says it. He writes, and I quote, We should be saying in our hearts, as sure as I see and touch and taste this bread and this wine, so sure is it that Jesus Christ is not a fancy, but a fact, that he is for real, and that he offers me himself to be my Savior, my bread of life, and my guide to glory. He has left me this right this gesture, this token, this ritual action as a guarantee of this grace. He instituted it, and it is a sign of life-giving union with him, and I am taking part in it, and thus I know that I am his, and he is mine forever. Woohoo! That is glorious. So come now and let us take, let's bow our heads and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. And as we bow our heads, perhaps 
you are here this morning, but in the recesses of your heart, you know you have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. But God has been speaking to you. His spirit is pricking at your heart and convicting you of your need for Jesus Christ. Listen, at this moment, I invite you, I plead with you to come to Jesus in saving faith by praying to him, asking him to forgive you and to be your savior and king. And when you express that heart's desire to God by faith, we have the promises of God in his word that he will forgive you of your sin. He will restore you to a right relationship with him. He will adopt you into his eternal family. And you have the blessed assurance that your home is with him for all eternity. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the Lord's Supper. Help us not to miss the meaning of what it is. Thank you for the cross of Christ that provides our salvation. We celebrate your grace and we feast on your forgiveness. We look forward to your return. May we participate with hearts that are filled with joy because we've come to your table in obedience. Help us to take this supper in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. With your head still bowed, I want to give us just a few minutes, seconds here, just a moment of time. I know most of you are believers in Jesus Christ, but before we participate, maybe God has revealed to you there is, there, there is sin in your life that you need to deal with, that you need to bring before the throne of God and ask for his forgiveness and claim that forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Would you do that even now as we prepare? Again, Lord, we thank you so much. Oh, how we praise you for your sacrifice on the cross and your resurrection that provides us the forgiveness of our sins and gives us the gift of eternal life, makes us right with God Almighty. Thank you, Lord, for your provision. In your son's name, amen. Well, followers of Jesus Christ, if that is you here this morning, you are one who trust Christ for your salvation, you identify with Christ in baptism, and you commit to Christ's body in membership of a local church of like faith and practice. We invite you to participate in communion. The bread and the juice represent the body and the blood of Jesus when he died on the cross and reminds us of who our Lord is, what he has done for us, is doing for us, and will yet do for us when he returns. And so, if you have one of these, I encourage you, invite you to peel back that first layer. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then you can peel back the next layer to reveal the juice. When the Bible says in verse 25, in the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.
I'm going to invite the praise team to come on up and the instrumentalists to take their, their seats. And uh, we want to close this service out by rejoicing in song, by celebrating in song, singing to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, uh, and I can't think of a better way to close out a service after the Lord's Supper than doing just that.